direct our attention as we open our Bible to the author of the Bible, you. We ask you to make this book and the principles therein not something distant, but something that are very relevant, very real, and very practical as we submit ourselves to the Word of God and the God of the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our attitude toward things reveal a lot about us, whether we have a tight grip on the things that we have or a light touch. Uh, Not that we should trash the things that God has entrusted to us, but we shouldn't let them own us. And that's sort of the subject of the tenth and final commandment where we read in verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. How do we hold things? Light or do we grab a hold of them? There's a great story that comes to us from Paul Harvey. You've heard his radio show on the radio. It comes on around 12 noon here. Paul Harvey, he speaks like that. And he has a little section called the For What It's Worth Department. And one day he said, Our For What It's Worth Department wants you to know what Carl Coleman told Quote Magazine. He was driving to work when a woman motorist passing too close snagged his fender with her fender. Both cars stopped. The young woman surveying the damage was in tears. It was her fault, she admitted, but it was a brand new car less than two days from the showroom. How was she ever going to face her husband? Mr. Coleman was sympathetic but explained they must note each other's license number and automobile registration. She reached into the glove compartment to retrieve the documents in an envelope and the first paper to tumble out In heavy masculine scrawl were these words, In case of accident, remember, honey, it's you I love, not the car. That man had his priorities right. That man loved people more than property. To him, the car was important. He bought it. It was a nice thing. But he was married to her, not the car. The commandment, the tenth commandment, is different from all the others. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery are actions that we can see when they happen. When you covet, nobody sees it. You can covet all you want during the day and nobody will know that you're doing it. It's a hidden process of the mind. And that's what makes this commandment different from the others is that it deals with the thought life. What goes on behind the scenes where nobody else is looking. There are many people who would be surprised. Let me rephrase that. There's a lot of people who wouldn't place coveting in the same list as thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. To put coveting in there, there are many Christians who don't even regard that as something serious. But the Bible does. In fact, you may be surprised to know that many times they're all placed together. Paul the Apostle in Corinthians says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will never inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are practicing these things on an ongoing habitual basis. Even Jesus Christ put them all together when he said to the multitudes, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness. 
All these evil things come from within and they defile a man. Now this morning we'd like to look at this commandment and discuss the two types of life that are different from one another. The covetous life versus the opposite of that, which is the contented life. Now in verse 17, the word, you shall not covet, has a word, it's an interesting word, that we have used already in another commandment. The word in Hebrew is hamad, which can mean positive or negative. It can mean a desire or a delight. The word in the Greek language in the New Testament when it says, you shall not covet, it's the word epithumeo. It's a word that you have heard before in this series. It comes from two Greek words put together. Epi, which means upon or an intensified form of a word. And thumos, which means passion or heat or anger or lust. It's the same word, epithumeo, that Jesus used in Matthew 5 when he said, whoever looks upon another woman to epithumeo, to lust after her, has already committed adultery in his heart. It can mean good things or bad things. Now you might say, wait a minute, I'm puzzled. How can one root word mean both delight and lust? Well, the word covet from this word means an inordinate desire for delightful things. No one covets what they don't delight in. No no one covets something they don't like. It's something that's delightful to them and appealing to them and attractive. Coveting is when you have an inordinate passion to possess or compulsion to have. It's the person who says, I must have that person or that thing. God has given to us impulses for survival, and we're grateful to God for them. We need them. All of us have a drive to eat, and it's a good thing. Otherwise, we'd starve to death. Every day we get to a place and we go, I'm hungry. Of course, we can, as we talked about last week, exaggerate and say, I'm starving to death. But we have an impulse that demands that we eat to survive. Uh, We have an impulse to drink so that we can satiate our body's thirst. We also have a desire to acquire which in and of itself is not all that bad. It can become bad when it becomes covetousness. God has placed within a squirrel the instinct to hoard nuts for the winter. Nothing wrong with that. He's not a selfish squirrel for taking all those nuts. It's going to last the whole winter long. A bird isn't wrong when he hoards up straw and mud and all sorts of little items to build a nest for protection. It's part of the survival. A.H. Maslow has what he calls a hierarchy of needs or desires that every human being has that are part of the survival instinct of a human being. But covetousness is different from just desiring or appreciating beauty. There's a big difference between saying, I'd like to have that, that's nice, and saying, I must have that, that passion to possess. Ben Franklin said, Our necessities rarely equal our wants. Boy, isn't that the truth? How many times have we said, I need this? When if we were really honest, we would translate that, I greed this. I mean, you don't need a lot of things that you think you need. You will live and breathe and keep going without those things. And he was right. Necessities 
never equal wants. A reporter years ago interviewed a woman by the name of Lynette Frome. She was the one who was caught for trying to shoot President Gerald Ford in Sacramento many years ago. And as the newspaper interviewed this lady, they found that she was part of the Manson family. And she said that the thing that attracted her to Charles Manson, quote, was the philosophy, get what you want whenever you want it, for that is your God-inspired right. Now, she just beautifully defined the sin of covetousness. Get whatever you want whenever you want it. That's your God-inspired right. Covetousness is a part of this country as it is of every culture. It happens to be big business, however, in our country. Advertisement is a $14 billion a year endeavor. In fact, there are people who work 40, 60, 80 hours a week trying to create covetousness, trying to help you covet, trying to convince you that you can't live without that toothpaste or that designer gene or whatever the product might be. And there are all sorts of ways to appeal to your emotions, the emotion of pride, the emotion of sexual arousal, your desire for beauty, fear, with colors and slogans and music, all to appeal so that you say, I've got to have that. I can't really be complete until I do have it. Fred Allen said, advertising is 15% commission and 85% confusion. You get a person sort of confused. I thought I was happy till I saw this advertisement. Now I think I have to have it. There's people who work hard at doing that. The ultimate goal of much of advertising is to impair your self-control. That other impulse that would say, I can live without it. Advertising is designed to break that impulse down so that you don't have self-control, so that you'll find yourself getting it. It starts when you're young. Um, I find it's often risky business just to let my son watch Saturday morning cartoons. Because I know that there's going to be some commercials on there that's going to convince him that his life is completely incomplete because he doesn't have those new Jurassic Park characters. <laughs> the very thing that he thought would satisfy him, a Saturday morning hour of cartoons, makes him more dissatisfied. Actually, I was amazed to watch what they did with Jurassic Park. Months before the movie came out, people were in line with products and designs already because they're going to make a big business out of this whole episode of dinosaurs and the Jurassic Park theme. It starts when you're young, but it goes all the way through our lives, and it works. Americans are very dissatisfied people. USA Today newspaper, right in the small corner where there's a little cameo uh, article often, there was an article that once read, Tracking Tomorrow's Trends. They said, quote, On the average, American households believe that they need $8,000 to $11,000 more in annual income to live comfortably. That's across the board. We're just not happy with what we have. An American company went down and started a plant down in Panama, and uh, they hired the local people from the area who were mostly agrarians, farmers, and they never had cash. They deal with trade. They barter. But this company decided to pay its employees in cash. Well, most of the employees in that area had more cash in their hands in a week than they had seen in a lifetime. 
And that created a problem. After two or three weeks, many of these employees were quitting the job. They go, look at all this cash. Hasta la vista, baby. And they were out of there. And so the company needed a solution, and the executives bought everybody on the job a Sears catalog. Seriously. Then they said that no one quit because they all wanted the previously undreamed of things that they saw in that book. Page after page, there were other things they could buy if they just work another couple weeks. I can have this, ooh, and that, and that's a creature comfort. We're used to that. Now, there's three characteristics I'd like you to consider about covetousness. When a person enters into that type of mentality, number one, it reveals his discontentment with God's provision. He's dissatisfied with the lot in life that God the Creator has given to he or to she. A person who is covetous, though he may not verbalize it, thinks, God isn't fair. I deserve better. I deserve more. God shortchanged me. How come I don't have a better job? How come I don't have a better husband or wife? How come I don't have a better house? It's the grass is greener syndrome on the other side of the fence. And God has kept me on this side of the fence. He's blessed everybody else on that side of the fence. And poor me, I'm over here. There was a cartoon in a newspaper not long ago that showed a field of grass and a fence that divided it. The grass was growing big on both sides of the fence. There was a mule on this side. There was a mule on that side. But the cartoon showed each mule sticking its head through the fence, eating each other's grass. And at the bottom was the caption, discontent. But David said in the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Don't you think that a complaining Christian is an insult to God? and to the provision that God has given. Jesus gave a parable, actually, along those lines. He said there was once a farmer, a landowner, who had a vineyard. He got up one day and he decided to get workers who wanted to work out in the vineyard. And early in the morning, about 6 o'clock, he hired a guy. He said, I'll pay you a denarius if you go out and work in the vineyard. The guy said, great, good wage, I'll do it. At about 9 o'clock, he found somebody and said, I'll give you a denarius if you work the rest of the day in my field. At 12 noon, same thing happened. At 3 in the afternoon, he found there were still people who wanted to work. So he said, I'll give you a denarius if you work. At 5 o'clock, an hour before quitting time, he found somebody, gave him a wage, and he worked. At the end of the day, who was unhappy? The guys who started at the beginning, who at first didn't know any better, but when they found out that the landowner was willing to give the same wage for a guy that worked an hour, they didn't like it. And Jesus said, They came and complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But the landowner answered, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Take what is yours and go your way. Good counsel for us. Is God blessing somebody else? Leave them alone. Rejoice for them. How come you're not blessing me, God? That's complaining against the lot in life that God has given to you. Maybe God knows you can't handle what they can handle. He can't entrust you with that much. Or maybe for a time He's testing you to see where your heart really is at. Have you found that it is so easy to weep with those that weep, but it's hard to rejoice with those that rejoice? 
as the Bible says. Your brother's going through a trial. He's lost something in his life. His business is folded. And you're there to put your arms around that person and weep with that person. But what about when that guy's blessed more than you are? God just gave them an inheritance or a new piece of property. What's your response? Praise the Lord. (laughs) Or is it genuinely, I'm so glad that you're blessed. Not only does it reveal that we're discontent with God's provision, it shows that we do not regard our fellow man. Whenever you are covetous of what somebody else has, it shows that there is a lack of love for the person who owns them. I want you to look at that commandment again and notice how it's phrased. It does not just say, don't covet, like it says, don't steal. But it elaborates, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. It's not wrong to want a house, a wife, or an ox. I don't know if it'll be quite in that order or not, but there's nothing wrong with wanting those things. It becomes wrong when you want that which belongs to your neighbor. When the ox happens to be your neighbor's ox, the wife happens to be your neighbor's wife, the house happens to be your neighbor's house then it becomes an inordinate compulsive desire for something that is delightful that doesn't belong to you, hands off. When we covet, we jeopardize our attitude to the person who owns those things. Have you ever worked with somebody on the job and you thought, I could do a better job than this guy? In fact, I wish I had his job. He gets a lot more money than I do. I do a lot better job than he would. How can I convince the boss of that? Pretty soon your relationship toward the person who has the job changes. Maybe you're thinking, maybe he'll miss his deadline or come in late a few times, get in trouble. And maybe you'll start scheming how you could take the job away from that person. Or there's people who, instead of being happy and contented with the wife or the husband God has given them, they're looking for somebody else's husband and wife and will publicly berate their own spouse or compare their spouse to somebody else. There's always a jeopardy. Whenever the object of our affection belongs, whenever we take somebody else's house, wife, ox, or whatever, and make that thing or that person the object of our affection, our neighbor who owns them becomes the object of our disdain. There's a distance in the relationship with that person. David and Uriah is a perfect example. David longed for his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba, wanted to have her, coveted his neighbor's wife. That put a distance between David and Uriah. He brought Uriah back from the field, got him drunk, and finally had him killed. And finally, covetousness ripens into other forms of sin. It's not something that just ends. You don't see it right away, but it eventually comes out in other forms of behavior. Now, let me read a scripture that you have heard before in this context. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Mark that carefully. It doesn't say necessarily those who are rich, but those who desire to be. It could be somebody very poor. And they fall into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I've heard that misquoted. Money's the root of all evil. Baloney, it's the love of it. And there are people who have a lot of it and they want more. And there's people who don't have any of it and their compulsion is to get what they don't have. It's that love, that desire, that coveting that is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Lot was an example. His covetousness led him to selfishness and being mean toward Abraham. He wanted the best of the land. Abraham could have what's left over. Achan was a fellow we read about in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges. When the children of Israel were going in to take Jericho, when God had the walls fall down, God said, when you go in and you take the spoils, don't keep them. They belong to me. You dedicate them all to the Lord. Well, there was a guy named Achan. His covetousness led to thievery. He stole from God. He said, I saw a Babylonian garment. I coveted it and I took it. Then there was Judas. He was covetous. He wanted 30 pieces of silver. He was the one who complained because Mary gave a large offering to Jesus that he thought was extravagant. He was keeping the money bag. His covetousness led him to betraying the one who loved his soul the most and it led him into the grim death of suicide. It's a warning for us. An anonymous author once wrote, Alas, there are church members who, fascinated by the seemingly fair and innocent flower, covetousness, have forsaken the pilgrim's path to pluck it, but it was only to find themselves wounded by its many thorns. So there's a warning. The covetous life. You shall not covet. Now let's flip the coin and compare that with the contented life, which is the opposite of being covetous. I'd like you to turn in the New Testament to the book of Philippians. As we often say, flip to Philippians chapter 4. I like to turn here because it's an unusual book. He speaks of being content. Where is he writing from? The Hilton Towers in Beverly Hills? No, he's writing from a Roman prison. He had every right, we would think, to complain. But look at chapter 4, verse 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Did you know that contentment is not automatic? You've got to learn it. Just like we're taught discontentment in this country, you have to learn contentment. Paul said, I learned it. Verse 12. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Somebody once said there's two kinds of people, thermostats and thermometers. Think about it. Thermometers have no power to change anything around them. Thermometers go up and down depending on the reading of the atmosphere. Thermostats regulate their surroundings. They're not affected by them. They change what's going on. Paul was a thermostat. He had good weeks and bad weeks. He had times when his ministry thrived. There were other times where he was beaten. There were times where he prospered, times he was in poverty. 
but he consistently served the Lord and didn't say, I have to be pampered before I'm going to serve the Lord. It was that consistent in good times and bad times, I've learned to be content. Or you might say that instead of being a victim of his circumstances, he was a victor over them. He learned contentment. Now I think the question at hand for all of us, we already know that covetousness denotes several wrong things about a person. And we know that contentment is where we want to be. Paul said, I've learned to be content. How do we learn it? Isn't that what we want to know? How can I learn to be content? I want to offer you three things that will lead to a contented life. Number one, a single eye. A single eye. That is, seeing correctly and consistently where you're going. In the, in the context of all of eternity, a single eye, a devoted eye toward the Lord. If you're in Philippians, you might want to turn right and go to Colossians chapter 3, the first couple verses, where the apostle continues, If you were then raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. One translation puts it this way. Let all of your aims be centered in heaven. I've heard people accuse Christians of being so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. And I've met a few like that. They sort of think they just float through life without responsibility. I think you need to walk on the earth, but your hope needs to be in heaven. Paul said our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we look for the glorious return of Jesus Christ. You have an earthly address, but it's not permanent. In a hundred years, you won't be there. In fifty years, a lot of us won't be there. We'll be in eternity. But our citizenship is in heaven. You can always tell a true citizen of a country. I remember one time I was in England and I tried to pass myself off as a Britisher and I put on the British accent. I said, good eye. Oh, that's Australia. I said, you know, I put on the English accent and tried to buy bread and donuts in a bakery and... It was a, I was a dead giveaway. It wasn't a good accent. I walked in the store and I said, Could I buy some bread? And the man said, You're from California. <laughs> I gave it away just like that. But you can tell a true citizen right off the bat. A true citizen who's been in the country not his own gets homesick very quickly. He thinks about the customs, the culture, the food. I know that when I travel... If I'm away from my wife and kids, and Nathan especially, I will often just dream. I'll wake up in the morning wishing I had a little hug from Nathan or a kiss on the cheek from my wife. Or I'll start after a while smelling or dreaming of American food in my imagination. I'll think of chile and fajitas and all the things that make home home and uniquely this place. A citizen of heaven looks forward to seeing Jesus. Someone who's really not a true citizen says, Oh, I hope the Lord doesn't come back for a long time. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to do before He does. But a true citizen wants to be home. Dorothy was right. There's no place like home. A single eye. Secondly, a loose grip. A loose grip on the things of this life. You came into this world with zip. And you won't leave with anything either. I've heard of people being buried in their cars or their motorcycles or their jewelry or something. You know, come on. That's as far as it goes. Somebody once said, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, have you? Can't take it with you. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul said, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Job said, great, great philosophy of life. After he had everything, being very rich, and he lost everything, and he was extremely poor, and his wife said, Job, curse God and die. He said, Naked I came into this world, naked I will leave. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know how he could say that? He had a light grip, a loose grip. He didn't grab too tightly. There's two ways to hold things in this light, tightly or loosely, having a light touch or trying to grab a hold of it. When my father was very young, he talked about his pet raccoon. He has many fond memories of that little pet. They used to catch him where he lived. And in the old days, the way they would catch raccoons is they would have a little barred box and they would have a ball of tinfoil wadded up inside the box. It was all shiny. Put it out in the sun and stake that box firmly to the ground. That raccoon would come by and see that glittery thing and he'd reach his paw in between the bars, just enough clearance to get the paw in, grab a hold of that piece of tinfoil, and he'd try to pull it out. Of course, the hand enlarges when there's something in it. You can't pull it out. The interesting thing about that dumb little raccoon is that he won't let go of that thing. He would rather lose his freedom and his life, in many cases, than let go of that glittery piece of tinfoil. How descriptive of some human beings. All of the things of this world that glitter and they're so glamorous and we grab a hold of them, but we can be entrapped by them. They start owning us because we have too tight of a grip. We need to have a light touch. It's okay to have things, but it's when those things have us. We are a steward of what we say we own. God owns it all. God lets you borrow it for a while. And you're a steward of those things. And He'll hold us responsible and accountable. But I like that saying in Zion National Park, as you enter and leave, it says, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints. It's a good way to live in this world. Can't take it with you. And I think also a loose touch means that we'll be thankful for what we already have. Instead of saying, this is mine and I want more, it's, God, you've been so good. I'm so thankful for what you have already entrusted me with. That's a loose grip. The Chinese have a saying, when you drink from the stream, remember the spring. And when you drink from the blessings that you take on here in this life and in this country, remember the God who has entrusted you with them as a steward. Paul wrote to the Philippians. He said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. With thanksgiving. Jesus was one time going from Galilee and Samaria down into Jerusalem. He met ten guys who had leprosy. They begged, have mercy on us, Master. So Jesus said, all right, go to the priest, offer, yourself, offer the sacrifice, show yourself to him, and you'll be healed. As they went on their way, they were all miraculously, instantly healed of leprosy. How many came back to thank him? Uno. Jesus said, where are the other nine? Were there not ten cleansed? Nine-tenths of the people who received from God in that story never thanked him for it. There's a lot of people who are there for the handout, but they never are there for the hands up. Thank you, Lord. You've given me so much. It's often, I don't have enough. 
I've been serving you a long time. I deserve more, God. We need to have a light touch. Finally, not only a single eye and a light touch, but open arms to share. There are some people who go through life with catcher's mitts on both hands. Come on, give it to me. I want it all. Instead of throwing it once in a while and giving it away. A covetous person dreams of having. A contented person dreams of giving. What he has. Not holding on to it. In the New Testament, there is that story of a very young, very rich young man who came to Jesus. And he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. You shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Keep these and live. The man said, I've kept all these from my youth up. Did he really? He was thinking only in the terms of keeping the outward commandments. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. My life outwardly looks pretty good. I've kept all the commandments. I'm a good religious person. So Jesus tested him in the area of the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. He said, okay, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. You'll have treasures in heaven. It says that the young man was sorrowful and he went away. Being covetous, he wanted to hold on and get more than he had because he wasn't satisfied and he wanted more than what he had and he didn't want to give any away. A contented person loves other people. And he loves to see other people blessed because he not only has a single eye and a light grip, but he has open arms. He's a channel through which God flows and works. He's the kind of a person who writes notes. And he says, in case of accident, remember, honey, it's you I love, not the car. That's a contented person. Everything you and I own is going to burn. There's only one thing that is immortal, and that is you. Don't be encumbered. Remember something else, too. As you look on the other side of the fence and you see the green grass, somebody once said, if the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, good chance the water bills are a lot higher, too. <laughs> when you have more, it takes more to keep it up. God knows what you can handle. God loves you, and God has apportioned it to you. Something final. There's a lot of covetous people who are simply looking for fulfillment because they haven't received the gift of Jesus Christ, eternal life. They're restless spiritually. So they try to get everything they can to fulfill the emptiness that can be satisfied by a relationship with God. Perhaps that's your life this morning. And if that's so, we'd like you to go to the prayer room to my right, to your left after the service. Or perhaps if you're driving in your car right now, you've heard this over the radio, stop by. Be with one of the pastors and commit your life to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings that you have entrusted to us that we are stewards of. Mostly we thank you for the gift of eternal life that none of us earned. All of us are sinners. None of us are any really better than anyone else. You've just forgiven us and given us eternal life. And we are grateful. And I pray that we would just pause and thank you having a single eye, knowing where we're going, a loose grip, not holding on too tight, and open arms. That's only a work that you can accomplish, and we ask you to do it. We thank you for the time we've spent the last several weeks in the Ten Commandments, this series, the pillars for wise living. Help us to be wise, to glorify you in Jesus' name.